around here for the last few weeks will know that we've been going through the letters to the churches in Revelation. You know, Revelation is quite a meaty book, isn't it? And there's quite a lot of interesting stuff. These letters were given to John, St. John the Apostle, um, kind of like Jesus came and met with him and said, I want you to write these literal letters and give them to these literal churches that actually existed in this time in the, in the area that we would consider as kind of modern-day Turkey. Um, and, and some of those places you can still go and visit. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to Ephesus. I've said this a few times and in summer when I would talk, when we were doing a session on Ephesians, I showed some of my holiday snaps and talked about Ephesus. But it's really fascinating, the letter, the first letter to Ephesus, um, you know, about losing their first love. And I talked about some of the history of that church. And we've gone, gone through a few of the churches. And today we're at a, a, a different church. We're at um, the fourth letter in Thyatira. Thyatira, sounds like a Bristolian place. But um, it's, it's kind of in that part of Asia, and we'll explain that in a little bit. But we can do it in a little bit of a different way, because I recognize... If you've been with me for the first three letters, you might be a bit exhausted. <laughs> because I have to be honest, they're not easy listening. I mean, there's some good bits. Jesus always commends them and says, well done for doing this, well done for doing this. But then there's the challenge. So there's a kind of commendation. Then there's a challenge. And then there's the offer of a crown. And if you do this, you'll, you'll achieve this. But they're quite challenging. Some of the challenges that Jesus makes to the churches are quite painful. Uh, and, and tonight's one is the same again. So I want to do it in a slightly different way because I don't want to just sort of pound us. And the reason we're doing these things is not just because it's interesting intellectually to look at these churches, but because I believe they're really relevant to us today. The things Jesus was saying to those churches, the challenges they faced are very much alive in our days today and the challenges that we face individually and corporately. So we're going to do look at the next one tonight, but we're going to do it in a slightly different way by starting... With, a, with a, a reading from today's lectionary. Many of you are going, what's a lectionary? <laughs> well, the lectionary is what the Church of England uses to read through the Bible over a period of three years. So if you, if you go to a, a kind of church where the lectionary is being used every morning, as it is here in the parish in St. Tom's, um, we kind of work through the lectionary. And in three years, you pretty much get through most of the Bible, which is brilliant. So it's a great way of systematically going through the Bible and following a series of sermons on that. And this morning's reading, one of the readings, was from John's Gospel, John chapter 14. And I kind of, as I preached on it this morning, it kind of struck me that I thought, actually, this kind of ties into what I'm going to talk about tonight. So I'm going to tie the two together. So you get two half sermons instead of one whole one. That's the hope, anyway. Okay, so um, I think Miles is going to come and read a bit of the lectionary reading that we had from, from, from this morning. If you've got a Bible, John 14, verses 1 to 6. Uh, the reading is from John 14, verses 1 to 6. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Lovely jubbly. Let's pray. Father, help us as we look at these words and 
Jesus, your letter to the church of Thyatira, would you um, speak to our hearts tonight to bring revelation and wisdom in these days that we live? In your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, many of you might be aware that um, heart disease, heart trouble, coronary problems, it's the leading cause of death globally in the world, across the whole world. Heart problems, that's the thing that kills most people. Can we put that first verse up? Um, yeah, there we are. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And so tonight I want to kind of look at a different kind of heart trouble, though. Um, not one that affects our flesh and blood, but the core of our being, the one that kind of where our seat of emotions are, our heart. And this kind of heart trouble, I think, affects everybody. Young or old, good or bad, fit, unhealthy, no one's immune from it. And not even Jesus, which is something I want us to think about, perhaps, and so why did he say this and what did he mean? And I wonder what troubles your heart today. For me, if I'm really honest, the list is long and ugly. I, I wrote a few things down. <laughs> I could have kept writing all day. I wrote this. I think about all the violence and suffering across the world. Syria, Aleppo, the Ukraine, Istanbul, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Iran. I think about the shootings this morning in Kentucky, think about the young man who was stabbed to death outside McDonald's on f Saturday night here in Bath, persecuted Christians around the world, more, more Christians tortured, persecuted and killed today more than any other time in human history. I think about the COVID pandemic, terrorism, financial pressures and crisis. I think about all the protests around the world at the moment, strikes, healthcare failures, displaced immigrants, refugees, gun violence, knife crime, homelessness, racism, poverty. I think about stories of bullying and mental health challenges, Russia, North Korea, growing global tensions around the world, China. And then I think about the nightmare of our political dysfunction in all our parties in just about every country at the moment. I think about those grieving and mourning the death of loved ones, families that are struggling to clothe their children or heat their homes, couples that are divorcing, children that are hungry, and people who are hanging on just by a thread. And then I think of my own troubles, my own challenges, my own inadequacies, losses and frustrations. And then perhaps especially right now, I'm deeply troubled by some of the existential challenges facing the church in our nation. Particularly, if I'm honest, the Church of England, but not exclusively. Issues around morality, issues around ecclesiology. That, that, that means the way we do church, what church looks like. I think about crisis in leadership in churches, the direction that church is taking, and perhaps most fundamentally, issues around doctrine and theology. My heart is deeply troubled by the state of the church. And when I say the church, that's not an institution, it's, it's people, it's us, so I'm part of that. And when I say the church, I don't mean the church that Jesus imagines when he's coming back for the bride, because that's holy and glorious and wonderful. I just am deeply troubled by the state that the church has, what it's become. And it's not just the Church of England. But, I don't know how many of you watched yesterday's coronation. Did you watch it? Lots of you, probably, some of you. And whatever you think of the crown and the king and all of that, that's a slightly separate issue. I watched bits of it. I watched a lot of the Queen's funeral, actually. I didn't intend to watch a lot of it, but I watched it and kind of got sucked into it. I definitely didn't get sucked into yesterday's coronation, if I'm honest. 
there were lots of thoughts that came to mind. There were, there were good points. But I did think, why are none of these people smiling? Where's the joy in all of this? I mean, the only time Charles cracked a smile was when the archbishop couldn't get his crown on straight. And that took an immense amount of time. There wasn't a lot of joy. Now, I understand that it's very intense and it's solemn. Like I think a wedding has beautiful solemn bits with the vows. But there's joy in it. And I looked at the way that the world would look at... This is a Christian, deeply Christian uh, thing that happened. Very powerfully Christian. But I looked at it and thought, the whole world, millions, perhaps billions of people are looking at this. And this is the Church of England. Is it really? Where's the joy? Where's the wonder? And you may well disagree with me, that's fine, because I'm not saying I'm right, but... I kind of thought, why are we using 500-old version of the Bible, which most people don't understand, when actually maybe there could be some more contemporary stuff to show the church at its most vibrant and joyous. And, and we get stuck, and we get trapped, and, and then the world looks at it and goes, well, it's very, very impressive, but where does that connect with my heart? So I'm troubled by what I watch, whilst at the same time being thankful that there are prayers being offered, and while there are as a spiritual dynamic to bits of our nation, but I wonder if it's more about institution than Jesus. So despite what Jesus says about not letting our hearts be troubled, <laughs> my heart often is troubled, and I suspect yours might be too, and I suspect you might have other things that you could add to your list, things that I didn't mention lots of things couldn't we because the truth is none of us get through life without a troubled heart I think and I, I don't think we can look at the pain around the world and the, and the suffering of loved ones and the crisis around us um, and at our own wounds and our own brokenness and our own pain and not have a troubled heart at least I hope not I think we should in one sense so Jesus says do not let your hearts be troubled well it's probably helpful to look at the context of that Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. It's the night before, um, it's the night of the Last Supper, the night before he's kind of um, crucified. And Jesus has announced his departure from his world. He's basically announced his, his death. Feet have been washed. Judas has left the table and stepped towards his betrayal. Peter's going to break his silence with his awful threefold denial very shortly. Thomas is completely lost and says, how can we know the way? Philip has lost his vision later on and he, he can't see what's right in front of him. And he says, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus is like, you've seen the Father. I'm the, in the Father and the Father's in me. Everything, if we're honest, is a real mess. And Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Really? Are you kidding me, Jesus? Like if there's a time for our hearts to be troubled, this is it right now. Does he know what's happening that night? And does he know what's happening in our world and in my life and in your life and the mess? Because he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Really? Is that possible? How can he say it with a straight face? How can he say it when he himself was deeply troubled at seeing Mary and the Jews weeping at the death of, death of Lazarus, his friend? You can read about that in John 11. And after, he, after the triumph procession, when he comes into Jerusalem, you know, and everyone's waving palm branches at him, and he, he himself says that his own soul is troubled, John 12. And then when John's gospel later on, 
tells us that the night after telling his friends that he, one of them was going to betray him, Jesus himself was troubled in spirit. So Jesus knows what it is to be troubled. He was troubled deep down in who he was. So what's Jesus saying then? What's Jesus telling them? Is it like stiff up lip chaps? Come on, pull yourselves together. I think sometimes we read it that way. Clearly that is not what Jesus was saying. It's not like we have an on-off switch that can switch our troubles on and off. Well, sometimes my wife tells me, you're far too logical, Tim, because I'm your, your man and I can sometimes switch those things off. But if I'm honest, that's not very healthy sometimes because it's not switching them on and off. It's just kind of uh, pushing them down and not look at them, which is, of course, deeply unhelpful as well at times. How do we begin to make sense of what Jesus is saying? How do we begin to make sense of these words in a world that is constantly troubled? Well, just maybe it's about where we choose to remain and dwell. Do we stay in that place of trouble? Or does, is it supposed to move us into action? Is it supposed to cause us to be honest with the trouble that we recognize we have in our own hearts and lives? And then do something about it. And when I say do something about it, I don't mean just try and sort it out, because that's a very male thing to do. Many of us know what that's like. But about moving us to complete, total and utter dependency on him, who is a rock, who is sure, who is our healer and our redeemer and our savior and our friend and our lord and our master and our king. And our dependency is supposed to be utterly on him with true repentance where we give everything to him because repentance is about turning around and walking in the opposite direction that's what repentance means about turning away from everything that troubles us and turning towards the one who is the solution and following him dependency on jesus and radical obedience to him maybe that's what helps our hearts find complete healing and in the light of that we're going to hear the second reading from fire tyra which i think jeff is going to come read to us. This is Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. Write this to Thyatira, to the angel of the church. God's son, eyes pouring fire blaze, standing on feet of furnace fire bronze, says this. I see everything you're doing for me. Impressive. The love and the faith, the service and persistence. Yes, very impressive. You get better at it every day. But why do you let that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet mislead my dear servants into cross-denying, self-indulging religion? I gave her a chance to change her ways, but she has no intention of giving up a career in the God business. I'm about to lay her low along with her partners as they play their sex and religion games. The bastard offspring of their idol-whoring I'll kill. Then every church will know that appearances don't impress me. I x-ray every motive and make sure you get what's coming to you. The rest of you Thyatirans, who have nothing to do with this outrage, who scorn this playing around with the devil that gets paraded as profundity, be assured I'll not make life any harder for you than it already is. Hold on to the truth you have until I get there. Let us pause here again. Okay, fabulous. So we've been looking at these churches. You may remember that the first church we looked at, Ephesus, the challenge was to return, return to your first love. 
the second church we looked at uh, was remember God's uh, faithfulness, Smyrna, and then Pergamon, refuse to compromise. And today, Thyatira is resist, the fourth R, resist, resist the enemy. Um, and it's quite a challenging um, letter uh, the ch- the, to the kind of um, the church in Thyatira. The words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. You know, sometimes we have this image of Jesus, don't we? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You know, I, uh, there's a painting up at St. Thomas behind the altar, and every time I look at it, I kind of smile because it's, it looks like someone on a Timothée hair shampoo advert. There's kind of Jesus, it's painted, it's a very Victorian painting of him, and he's looking serene with his brown golden locks, and he's carrying a lamb under his arm, and he's in his blue cloak and very coiffured beard. And it's kind of, you know, it's a very polished image of Jesus. And I understand why that was like that for many of those images. But here we have presented a quite scary sounding Jesus, if we're honest. The words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. His eyes and his feet are like, like some kind of superhero. It speaks of a God who's holy and powerful. Yes, he is the gentle shepherd. Yes, he is the Lamb of God, but he's also the Lion of Judah. And you don't mess with the Lion. Lions have a roar, and they have power and strength. And this is the letter written by Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I am your friend and your Lord, but I am also the King of Kings. The church in Thyatira is located um, in this city, which is on the Lycus River. And it it was a city that was known for trade, had trade guilds. And it was a city that was really, really wealthy. So it was a city that was known for, for trading. And you had different guilds to do with, um, if you know anything about the medieval period it come in, in England, you had different trades that represented different um, businesses. So you might have had the kind of cloth merchants, the traders, and then you'd have the, the kind, of, uh, kind of coal, or you'd have the spices or the fine wine traders, and they'd have a guild that protects their, their merchant business. And it would be very powerful and very wealthy. They would control um, uh, kind of a lot of the area. And it was incredibly, incredibly wealthy. But this prosperity in the city came at a cost. And the church had begun to allow false teaching and immoral practices, which probably would have related to the kind of the, the wealth of the city, to creep into their midst. These kind of practices that kind of began to twist the church slightly, right in their center. And Jesus writes a letter saying, you need to stop this. You need to resist and hold fast to what's true. So in a sense, there are three things that he wants them to do, to rec- that we need to do. Recognize your enemy. Recognize the enemy that's the heart of what's going on around you. And then resist. Resist the enemy. And repent. Repent for the places you've allowed him to get a foothold and renew your trust in Jesus. Recognize, repent, Recognize, resist, repent, renew. So as you read this letter, and Jeff with his beautiful dulcet tones, (laughs) spoke about this church, that actually Jesus begins by commending them for their love, for their faith, for their service, for their perseverance. This is a church that was really, you know, again, successful like the other churches. It's been doing a lot of really, really good things. However, then he then warns them, and it goes, it suddenly seems a bit weird. Jesus then warns them about this woman called Jezebel, who's teaching and leading the people astray. 
Now, we don't know if this is a real person. I'll speak a bit about that later on. Or if it's simply a symbolic reference to the story of Jezebel in the Old Testament. You may know that story. I'm not going to go into it. But Jezebel in the Old... I mean, even the world would know the name Jezebel. You know, a woman who's a Jezebel. Um, And in the Old Testament, there was this woman, Jezebel, who was known for her idolatry and her wickedness. And she opposed God. She was against God. And she would try and lure the people of God to follow her and her ways away from God. Um, And so Jesus writes this letter to this church saying, rather than rebuking this false teacher, whatever this false teaching was, and sending her out of the church and pushing her teaching out, well, the believers in Thyatira seem to be kind of allowing her to continue. Not necessarily championing her, but just sort of letting it just rest, going unchallenged, not rebuking the deception, allowing the deception to kind of ferment within the middle of the believers. You might remember, those of you that were here for the first week, Ephesus, or if you read the letter to Ephesus, they were a church who were really strong in action and doctrine. They kind of had all their, they they made sure they held firm to the truth and they did the right thing and made sure it was done very, very kind of properly, but they were lacking love. They weren't really, it didn't have any love. Well, Thyatira seems to be very strong in love. They're all about the welcome and inclusion and, you know, embracing and kind of not, kind of critiquing people too much but they were weak in doctrine everything began to slide they weren't willing to disagree with anyone about doctrinal heresies they weren't willing to take a stand to challenge wrong thinking or wrong actions instead they were we don't know really maybe just ignoring it maybe hushing it up maybe not wanting to confront it because they were scared hoping like I think a lot of us do that oh well this that will just fizzle out or that it will come to nothing, it will go away. And I think that's often, sadly, the case in the church today, the global church. Churches tend to get polarized into kind of one of two extremes. Either they have, it's been often put this way, they have full heads and empty hearts, full of knowledge and stuff, but they're not great at kind of connecting with people, their their kind of heart response isn't brilliant. Or they're full of hearts, embracing, welcoming, you know, drawing everyone in, but their heads are a bit empty because in, in order to get everyone to gather, they kind of just accept everything. And it is interesting to me that when I look at Jesus, there's a really telling verse in scripture where it says, and some people left him because they found his teaching too difficult. See, we would imagine Jesus was like the all-embracing, all-wonderful, oh, he loves everyone, he's so kind, and he, you know, he can raise children from the dead, and he's kind to squirrels and small animals, and he can produce food when I'm hungry, and, oh, Jesus is lovely <laughs> but I mean for a start he obviously really irritated the Pharisees who regularly wanted to kill him but also even some of his own disciples left him because what he was saying just seemed too radical they couldn't they couldn't surely not that Jesus surely not this some left him some who loved him left him they found it too difficult God demands both love and sound doctrine, grace and truth, freedom for believers and freedom for people, absolutely, but also people who are slaves to Jesus, to his will and his ways. And so Jesus calls out this church and he pronounces judgment on this Jezebel and calls the church of Thyatira to repent of their sins. I mean, listen to this. 
I will cast her on a bed of suffering and make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I mean, yowzers. <laughs> it's kind of not like a mild rebuke. Really, you shouldn't be doing that, fellas. Ladies, you need to stop that. It's not a mild rebuke. It's not a ticking off in the headmaster's office. It's like big decision time. You need to stop. You need to acknowledge you're wrong. You need to repent. And then you experience grace. Jesus makes it clear that this woman, and more importantly, her ways and her thinking, is not to be tolerated. And she's leading people away from the truth. And that the perennial problem with the church in Thyatira was that the problem was that they did tolerate, Scripture says, Jezebel's doctrines. Ephesus was um, commended, I think it's the beginning of this chapter, chapter verse 2. Ephesus was commended back in verse 2 for not tolerating wicked men. That was the verse that was used. There were, there were people there who had different ideas, but they didn't tolerate them. But tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and found them false. Here, Thyatira is criticized, not for simply allowing sinful heresy into the body, but actually allowing it to go unchallenged. That was the problem. Thyatira would get an A plus in lots of areas, but there was one area that made them absolutely fail the test for Jesus. The church had become tolerant. And we use the word tolerant, and it sounds like a positive thing, but here it's used as a kind of an unwillingness to identify sin, perhaps a desire to fit in with culture around them, for the right reasons, wanting to be all-embracing, but actually, they weren't willing to identify sin and call it out. I think today, there's a challenge for the wider church, and, and not just in the church, it's actually out in the world as well, to move from a position of absolute truth to relativism, where tolerance means that you must not say that anyone else is wrong. I mean, it's it seems incredible to me. And you see it on, if you dare go on Twitter, you see it on Twitter where someone makes this claim, whether it's Christian or another culture or uh, about gender or anything, and, they, and, make it, and then everyone goes against them. You know, in this so-called tolerant world, they absolutely tear into them because you can't have a definite opinion on things anymore. I think that's a problem for those of us that have faith because I think there are things we're supposed to be really sure about. Resurrection. Jesus, his ways. It's interesting, um, lots of scholars believe that Jezebel was probably encouraging the church to join the trade of guilds in Thyatira, even though that in practice what that would have mean is to join the guilds and to kind of, they would have had to um, sacrifice to the guild gods or the goddesses and participate in the festivals where there was lots of sexual activity, lots of food sacrificed to idols. Kind of, there was like a, to be in with the kind of the wealth and the guilds you had to compromise a little on your faith. You had to give ground and say, well, we do only worship Jesus and he is the true Lord, but actually I'm prepared to eat this food that's been sacrificed to idols. I'm prepared to pay homage to these gods. And Jezebel, this woman, if that possibly was her actual name, wanted the church to embrace the world around them, even if that meant compromising their beliefs in order to connect with and reach the people around them. And in this way, they failed to make a stand for truth. 1 Timothy 6, 20 to 21 says this, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in doing so have wandered from the faith. I think there's a principle that we need to be critically aware of the enemy's tactics to recognize that he's wanted to bring false teaching in all sorts of ways in our own hearts, to challenge our thinking, 
promoting in the midst of the church. And it often comes in stealthily, covertly, subtly. And therefore, the simple answer to this is this, the Bible. <laughs> that's, that's the greatest protection we can have. Know your word, read your word, live in the word. I mean, I, I meet loads of Christians, Jesus followers who say, oh, I don't read the Bible much. And then you chat to them about faith and what they believe, and yeah, you find out they don't. I think this has been given to us for a reason. It is God's word. Yes, it needs understanding. Yes, it needs prayerful consideration. And yeah, it's great to talk about it and to read and to pray and to study and to ask questions. But this is where we're supposed to be drawing our wisdom from. It is the firm foundation in a world that is constantly shifting. So in the Netherlands at the moment, the big thing is euthanasia of children under the age of 12 that parents and others can choose to have their child euthanized if they're really not well. 20 years ago, that would have been unthinkable. What are we going to have in another five years? I mean, I'm sorry to be really graphic, but this is true that in another part of the world, there's a campaign to allow bestiality, sex with animals. Because actually the world's changed and that's not wrong anymore, is it? Now that will shock us. <laughs> But if we went back 20 years to what would have shocked us, the lines keep moving. So I would suggest that tomorrow anything's pretty much up for grabs. Will there be a time when paedophilia is okay? I mean, you might think, no. Well, in some cultures, historically, it will have been. Children who are married in this world now, you know, at the age of 12. If we try and kind of work out a moral stance from what we feel is right today, we're always going to be shifting and moving. Whereas if we hold to the word of God, then we have a firm foundation in days of complete uncertainty. And, you know, everything is so messy and broken. I mean, you know, and I'm not making any judgments on any of it, but I was reading this morning about um, in Scotland where kind of there's lots of trans rights trying to be changed and then people who are outspoken against the trans and the trans community who are outspoken against the people who are challenging it. And there was a, this was writer was actually a, a lesbian MP who was campaigning against the trans stuff, saying that she had been threatened. It's just all out war. <laughs> it's, it's carnage. It's a mess. Whatever your view on these things are, doesn't matter in one sense, but we need to look at it for what it is, and what it is is a mess. Com opposing sides, arguing, asking for the, the laws to be changed, the, the ground to move, what's right to move, and one group argues one way and one group argues another way, and they argue from their own viewpoint, which will have changed and continues to change because society changes. That's the nature for good and for bad. What holds firm, what's immovable? I would suggest God's word, which is written for our benefit, our protection, our care. We need to be people of the word where we discern what God is saying. So we, we kind of recognize the enemy's attempts to confuse and to divert. And we resist him by reading the word, by praying, by asking God to lead us and for us to hold firm so we can stand faith. Standing firm in our faith. James 4, 7 says, submit to God. It's a great way to submit to God by reading his word, by praying. It says, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from us. It's the promise that as we hold firm to God's truth, as we turn our back on the enemy, as we try, turn towards Jesus and try and find him, then we get freedom.
And we have to do that by trusting that God is good all the time. God is a God, merciful, kind God, but he is a holy God. It's a bit like in, um, uh, I want to say Lord of the Rings, but that's the wrong book. Thank you. Thank you. You've been very good tonight. See, this is what happens when you affirm one of my jokes. That was, yeah, in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know when, is it Lucy talking about the lion? Aslan. Thank you. Aslan. And what does she say? She says, is he, is he nice? Is he kind? Is he, is he, no, what does she, what does she say to is he safe? That's a, do you want to come and just address this sermon? Yeah, she, she asked the question, is he safe? And um, it, it, the answer is what? Of course he's not safe. He's a chaffing lion. It doesn't actually say that, but, but virtually says, of course he's not safe. He's a lion. But he is good. He is good. And that's the thing about the God we have. He, 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 he's not your mate. He's not your buddy. He's not your chum. He's your friend. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. But he's also the King of Kings, and he's the holy, all-powerful, glorious, wonderful King who is holy. And Jesus looks at this church with eyes of love, but also with holiness. That means he can't have any sin in him. And with his holiness, he looks at this church, and he knows their deeds, and he knows their heart, and he knows their actions, and he's pleased with much of what he sees but he holds this against them and says, look, you're on the wrong path and you're going the wrong way and it's going to have serious consequences for your life. These immoral practices infiltrating their community and Jesus urges them to resist and hold fast to what is true, to what is true. So we need to hold fast to what's true. So I want to come into land with this. The Bible says our battles are not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, principalities of this dark world. So put on the full armor of God and stand firm, knowing that the victory in Christ is assured. If, and you might disagree with me, which is absolutely fine, because, you know, you can. If there are challenges, if the letter that's written to the churches here, say, for example, the church in Thyatira, isn't just for this church some 2,000 years ago, but is written so that we can learn from it and recognize some of the challenges that we as church today are facing, then we mustn't just look at this letter as an intellectual, oh, yes, no, it's good to be against heresy. Yes, it's good to stay firm to the truth. It's a good word, Tim, we stay firm to the truth. I think we actually really need to begin to take seriously what some of those challenges in our days might be and to talk about them. Not just a leader from the front, but talk about them amongst yourselves. Talk about them in, in your prayer triplets. Talk about them um, in your life hubs because... I think there is an existential challenge of the church in the nation. I think Satan hates the church because the church is the glorious body of God, of Jesus. It, the church is supposed to bring transformation and healing and wonder. And if the church just looks exactly like the world, everyone's going to look at the church and go, well, what is it? It's like joining a golf club, isn't it? But you pay slightly less and the people are generally happy. If that's, if that's about as powerful as we're supposed to be, I don't think we're going to change the world. Maybe we're supposed to be radical. Maybe we're supposed to challenge some of the thinking of the world. Maybe we're supposed to say, actually, we love you, but we think that's wrong. Not because we want to judge you, and the church has often done that awfully, just simply judge people, but say, because there's a better way for you that will bring joy. And what you're doing right now may feed some of your appetites, but actually it won't be lasting joy. But we've got good news that we can share. And it's about speaking in truth and loving people. And if that's the case, I wonder what some of the 
heresies, if I use that word carefully, it's a bit of a heavy word, isn't it? I wonder what some of the false teaching, false doctrine, false things in the church, and I don't just mean, you know, the Anglican church, I mean the church, I wonder what some of those things might be. Have a think for a moment on your own. What's some of the wrong teaching that you reckon might be around right now? I'm not going to ask you to come share it from the front, don't worry. So you can be really honest and brutal in your head. You might think it's me right now. <laughs> okay. We've actually got someone named one. And do you know what's really interesting? It's the first one on my list. So I've got a few that I'm going to share. And then what we're going to do to finish, we're literally going to finish with this for two or three minutes. I'm going to get you to turn to people around you and, and say which ones you think are real. You do not have to share your opinion on it. Okay? We're not getting into punch-ups necessarily. If you want to, you can. And, you know, you might actually be here as a person of no faith, and so you, you kind of just want to just listen in, that's fine. But you might be, it's really interesting, I've got a few non-Christian friends who have said to me, why doesn't the church speak up on this issue? Because they're expecting us to. No, they're not saying what side of the debate necessarily we should be on, but on... On some of the issues of whether it's gender or money, particularly in areas of poverty and injustice, why is the church so silent? They're like really surprised. They're expecting that we as Christians should have a view on these things. So maybe we should. So it's okay for you to say, well, I don't know what I think on this, but I think this may be an issue right now. Here's some of the ones I've got, and then you can go for yourself. Prosperity gospel. More so in the States and in other cultures, but it is in parts of the UK, definitely. So the prosperity gospel which i would say is kind of false teaching that says that material wealth and success are an evidence of god's favor and blessing on you and if you really submit yourself to god and if you really trust god for, for, for who he is he will give you material wealth and success and if you haven't got that that's probably an indication of uh, failure sin or curses on your life that in all of these things, there's always elements of truth, because if they're so obviously wrong, people would ignore them. The truth is God is a good God, and God can and does bless you, and God does provide for you. But also the equal truth is that uh, virtually all of those first apostles were crucified and martyred and died penniless. You, uh, you can't say, because I'm a Christian, everything in my life is now going to be wonderful. But the, material, the, the kind of prosperity gospel is a name it and claim it. Pray for it, believe it, and God will give it to you. And if you haven't, been healed it's because you haven't got enough faith i've heard people say that it's a complete abhorrence and it just isn't true it's about personal wealth and personal gain that's one thing another heresy knocking around is the whole thing of universalism this will be a teaching that suggests all people eventually will get to heaven everyone does um, doesn't matter what you believe doesn't matter what you do ultimately god is good and because god is love He's not going to let anyone not get into heaven. He's only going to want everyone to find God. It completely ignores what Jesus says. We heard it tonight. Um, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, and it kind of makes a bit of a mockery of evangelism. Because if we believe that everyone gets to heaven anyway, then we don't need to actually tell anyone about Jesus. There are links to, to that, sub, subdivisions of hell. Is hell a real place? Is it a place of destruction? Is it a place really, or is it just a figment of our imagination? Uh, and is there really such a thing as sin anyway? And judgment, is God a real judge? He can't be a real judge, he's loving. Those are all parts of that one as well. 
The third one I've got is hypergrace. That's one that says, well, God is so similar. God is so gracious and so loving, and the cross has paid for everyone's sin, so therefore you don't need to worry about sin because you're basically all forgiven all the time. All sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven by Jesus. So you don't need to confess it. You don't need to repent of it, really. You're okay. And you can actually go on living pretty much how you want to because you're covered anyway. Uh, you're not really bound by Jesus' teaching on these things. You're definitely not under the law. You're definitely not under any obligation to do anything. Um, and anyone who disagrees with that is a pharisaical legalist, they would say. So it kind of perverts grace, which is the truth of you can't earn your salvation, but then perverts it into license to do whatever you want to. That's in some parts of the church. And the last one that I thought about was this kind of thing to do with mo moral relativism which is that there are no absolute moral truths, that each person is free to determine their own moral code, that God's not going to tell you how to live your life. He's not going to set boundaries around that. You need to be free. And if you're happy and you're not hurting anyone else and, you're, you know, and there's love there, it must be good because love always comes from God, right? Um, it promotes a kind of live and let live mentality where all belief and behaviors are okay and they're all valid. And it kind of undermines the authority of Scripture which clearly does put boundaries around some things. And the type of areas, without getting into them, the type of areas where this will manifest today and within the church, and is a big discussion in the Church of England currently, will be in issues around gender, identity, marriage, and sex. What is the place of sex? I mean, that is part of the discussion. So I'm going to finish by saying my heart is really troubled in the days that we live in because of the brokenness of the world, but particularly because I believe the bride is beautiful with great news. The church is supposed to be a place of vibrancy and hope and joy and vision and healing and inclusion and welcome and care and transformation. It's supposed to be radiant and blameless and authoritative and plain speaking and full of love and full of truth. Not our truth, but God's truth. And we, it seems like the church is a bit lost. I know Jesus is going to help us, but these are the days we live in. So therefore, we need God to help us. We need to pray. We need to read the Bible. I believe we need to repent because that's what Jesus said to the church in Thyatira. I think we need to be a people of repentance. And we need to do that corporately, but of course it has to start in our own heart. I have to start with me. So I'm more regularly at the moment finding myself saying, Lord, will you show me where I've got this wrong? And I repent for my prejudice, for my wrong thinking, for my apathy, for my failure to speak out, for my fear, for my silence, all different things. We need to do that. So just as we close, we'll get the band up in a minute to finish. But just as we close, I would like you to be brave Turn to the people next to you. It might just be one person, twos or threes. And some of the things I've said might resonate with you. Where do you think over the next months, weeks, years, some of the areas of teaching, heresy, where Jesus might be saying to us, it might be us or it might be the church at large, you've got some of these things wrong or some of these things are a problem. Do you think you can do that to the person next to you? If you don't feel safe doing that, don't. If you do feel safe, Go for it. Twos, threes, twelves. Literally just for two or three minutes. You were very brave to talk out about, about 
prosperity gospel. It may be some things you've experienced or questions you're wondering about yourself. You don't have to put yourself on which side of the argument you are, but some of the questions that we're facing, go for it. Two minutes.